Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. to introduce our guest speaker tonight. He's pastor of uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona. You might recognize the voice from Scott Richards Live each day at, on KNKT. Now you see the face once again. Here's Scott Richards. Yes, I've always been told I have a face for radio, so... <laughs> Oh, you just got to find your place in the kingdom, you know. God's got one for everyone. Hey, we would really appreciate it if each and every one of you would just make a note, maybe on the bulletin that you have, maybe on a slip of paper that might be in your Bible, to be keeping tomorrow in prayer. The Scripture is really true when it says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not a question of personalities. It's not a question of rhetoric or debating techniques that's going to carry the day. But the power of the living God as His Word is shared. You know, it's our prayer that we don't show up and say, Yay, we as Christians are smarter or more eloquent or have a more compelling argument than pagans. Our desire is that Jesus Christ would be the focus of every presentation that is made there. That Jesus and who He is... Absolutely. And who he can be in the lives of college students that are making huge life decisions. That would be the message that would go forth. So if you would join with us in prayer. If you can't join with us personally there, either at 1230 at uh, Taffy Hall there on uh, the UNM campus or at the Lobo Theater at 7 o'clock tomorrow night, please just be praying. I think that's going to really carry the day. So we would really appreciate that very, very much. You know, it's been said that the single best form of advertisement is a satisfied customer. And I'd like to begin our time tonight by sharing with you the words of an individual we could call a spiritually satisfied customer. Certainly a great advertisement for what a relationship with God can do in a life. His name was King David. In Psalm 63, he wrote these words. O Lord, you are my Lord. Early will I seek you. My soul has longed for you. My flesh has yearned for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Thus I beheld you in the sanctuary to look upon your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands unto your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my heart shall praise you with joyful lips. Well, you want to talk about a satisfied customer we could tell right off the bat that that was David's heart. Why? He said, oh, Lord, my Lord, early will I seek you. Notice he didn't say, Lord, after I've had my coffee, I will seek you. 
Or after my brain is cleared a bit, I will seek you. No, early, right off the bat, before his feet hit the carpet in the morning, David was following hard after God. He loved the Lord. He loved the Lord, dare I say, with passion, with emotion. You know, David, I think, was a poster child of someone who understood what the Lord was getting at in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, when he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Funny thing. When we think about our relationship with God, how often do you think in emotional terms? Oh, we know in our neck of the Christian woods how to love the Lord with all of our mind and even with all of our strength. We are right on task as far as serving the Lord. But what about your emotions? What does it mean to serve the Lord with your feelings. Oh, I understand. As soon as the subject of emotion, as soon as the subject of feelings comes up in a Christian environment, people get a little nervous. Because generally speaking, we as believers will gravitate towards one side of the spectrum or the other when it comes to emotions. Maybe you've been in situations or fellowships where it's just an emotional free-for-all where they buy into, well, the gospel according to Debbie Boone. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. And meanwhile, people from the outside are looking in going, wow, I don't know what they've been into, but they should probably bottle it. <laughs> On the other side of the coin, you can go all the way over and look with disdain on such pew jumping and such exploits, and become a member of the frozen chosen. <laughs> you know what I mean. The types who have their doctrine and they have their duties, but you, you kind of catch them at certain, well, teachable moments when they stand around saying, singing songs like, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? <laughs> Down in my heart. <laughs> Where? <laughs> Down in my heart, I'm telling you. It's there. Trust me. Hey, I don't want to be a pew jumper. And I don't want to be a member of the frozen chosen. I want to worship the Lord with every part of my being. Don't you? God wants to give you that gift. In fact, believe it or not, as much as they drive us crazy sometimes, your feelings, your emotions are a gift from God. Big question. How do we scripturally manage our feelings before they manage us? How can we not be dominated by our emotions, but use our emotions in the way in which God has intended. Well, for the next few minutes, I would invite you to join me in a look at a very emotion-laden passage of Scripture.
Turn with me in your Bible to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. In Matthew, chapter 28, we are going to come face to face with arguably one of the most significant events in all of God's dealings with mankind. The resurrection of Jesus shared for the first time with the followers of Jesus. And let me tell you, this is an emotion-laden passage. In this scripture, in Matthew chapter 28, the first few verses we'll go through tonight, we're going to learn three very important things about our emotions from a scriptural point of view. First, we're going to see the proper practice of emotions from God's point of view. We're going to see exactly how God wants you to invest this gift of being able to feel, being able to be an emotional being for His glory in a really remarkable way. Secondly, we are going to see the problem with emotions. We're going to see that just because you have an emotional experience about a spiritual event doesn't mean you're doing business with God. We'll see some individuals in this account who really very graphically illustrate there's more to a relationship with God than how we feel. And finally, we are going to see God's prescription for our emotions. One emotion we should keep at the forefront of our minds. One emotion we should keep at the forefront of our hearts that can take all the spectrum of emotion in the Christian life, tie it together, and use it for the glory of God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us about this very personal but often misunderstood aspect of what it means to love the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Father, as we come to you tonight, how thankful we are that you, the true and living God, have made us in your likeness and image. And part of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of you, our Heavenly Father, is the ability to feel, the ability to enter into relationship, the ability to be able to enjoy the emotions that come with us. Lord, I pray that if there are some that have been, well, maybe burned on one side or the other by the undisciplined, unscriptural practice of emotions. Their emotions have run their lives. Teach them tonight. Their emotions can be excellent servants, but poor masters. And to keep that balance in place. If some, seeing that kind of excess, have just turned off their emotions, have just become ice cubes for Jesus, I, I pray that this would be a night that their hearts would melt. And they would be able again to know the joy of being able to worship you with every fiber of their being. Oh, may we, like King David, be satisfied customers, declaring what it means to know you in a joyful way. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 28, beginning at verse 1 says this, Now, after the Sabbath, that is the Sabbath that followed Jesus' crucifixion, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, I realize that for most of us, verse 1 is one of those passages that we kind of get through as quickly as we can because we're looking for bigger game spiritually. We're going, yeah, 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 okay, detail, detail, let's get to the main event. 
But do you realize the passage we just read details a miracle? A miracle. What is a real miracle? A real miracle is a work of God that can be explained in no other way than that the true and living God has touched a life. That the true and living God has intervened in the affairs of human beings. I believe this is exactly what we see described here. Why? Well, once again, let's slow down and take a look at this. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now, these two women are familiar to many of us. Mary Magdalene certainly is. She's certainly gotten her share of press lately, uh, both in Christian and in secular circles. But the other Mary being referred to here is, is one that, well, maybe you're not so familiar with. She's known as the mother of Joseph and James the Less. <laughs> Hardly what you'd call resume stuff. Most people, when they say, oh, you know, do you have a, a biblical hero or a heroine? They, they, they say, well, uh, Daniel, Joseph, Ruth, uh, you know, the, uh, very few say, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, Mary, the mother of James, and the lesson Joseph. Yet here we see this woman doing something remarkable, something heroic, dare I say something miraculous. Try to imagine the emotional state these two women were in as they approached the tomb of Jesus Christ. Now, we, because we know how it all turns out, say, well, of course they're going to be at the tomb. Of course they've got to be there. Of course they've got to see the resurrection. Ah, this is going to be the greatest moment in their life. But they didn't know that. Where were they, these two women at emotionally? Well, like the rest of the disciples, they were absolutely clueless about the promise of Jesus to rise from the dead. In fact, when they saw Jesus crucified, I don't think it's beyond the pale to say that along with their master being nailed to a cross, they saw nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ all of their desires, all of their dreams, everything they had invested themselves in, heart and soul died on that cross with Jesus. Disappointment? You better believe it. Have you ever walked down that path? Have you ever been in a place where God's will and your will parted company and you didn't understand it? For my money, that is one of the single most challenging trials we will ever face in the Christian life. Oh, maybe you've heard this before. God always answers prayer. He answers every single prayer that is prayed to Him. He answers in one of three ways. Yes, which we really love. No, which we'll pout about, but we can resolve things sooner or later. And then the one that drives me crazy. Doesn't it drive you crazy? Wait. I hate wait. Either do it or don't, Lord. But this patience stuff, I don't do patience. Well, Lord, okay, I'll make you a deal. Give me patience and give it to me now. <laughs> you know how that feels, don't you? Here we see this trial. And we laugh a little bit, but you may have been in a situation where you prayed about something. You asked God for something. 
And it wasn't just for a good parking lot on, of space on Wednesday night. This was serious stuff. It was make it or break it stuff. Maybe it was a relationship that was falling apart. And he said, God, please heal it. Maybe it was healing on even a more physical level. Someone you know, someone you love suffering in a hospital situation. The doctor saying, this does not look good. And you prayed and said, please, Lord, I've heard you do this before. Could you heal my loved one? Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your prospects for the future. Maybe it's some career choice you've made that you've always dreamed of and the doors just seem to be closing closing, and you pray and you say, God, please intervene. And the answer is stone dead silence. You ever been there? It can destroy your faith. There are all kinds of people out there who number themselves in that sad fraternity that we call ex-Christians who will tell you that that's exactly what happened to them. Their dreams, their desires, their hopes, they saw nailed to a cross and never thought they'd rise again. Ted Turner, the famous founder of the Cable News Network, shares why he is an atheist. He became an atheist, he said, when as a child his older sister became terminally ill. He prayed and asked God to heal her, and his sister died. And Ted Turner said, my faith in God died right along with her. Wow. Disappointment. Being let down. Seeing God do something in a different way than we could have ever imagined. That's exactly where these two women were. Yet, where do we find these two women? They are not looking for the Jerusalem chapter of the Israeli Atheist Society. Where do we find them? They were doing what they could. They decided that even if following Jesus ran completely in the opposite direction, they thought it was going to go. They thought that just because Jesus didn't meet their expectations as Messiah, they still loved Jesus. And they felt that even though their dreams had died with him on that cross, the least they could do to express their love one last time was to give Jesus a proper burial. And so they came to the tomb. This gang, in my experience, is a miracle. Because here we see how God defines an emotion we are all over, but really understand very poorly. Love. Love. You see, popular culture, the songs we hear on the radio, the books we read, even sharing with one another about our experiences, have told us that love is the greatest thing around. John Lennon told us, all you need is love. But how do we define love? We define love as a feeling. But would it surprise you to learn that the Bible defines love very, very differently? In the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, and verse 4, whenever I have the opportunity to do premarital counseling, oh, that's one of my responsibilities as a pastor, and, and it's certainly an interesting thing, because when these couples come in to see me, they are in love. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Oh, it's spelled W-U-V, not L-O-V. They are in love. And you can tell because they float into my office. They don't even walk in. They float into my office about two feet off the ground. And they sit together on the couch apart from my, uh, across from my desk. And they are sitting so close, it looks like one body with two heads. And they are just looking at each other like, this is the most beautiful sight in the entire universe. I, they, they're barely aware that I'm there. Until I kind of break the mood by saying, so, you two are going to get married, are you? Yeah, we're going to get married. Why do you want to get married? Oh, they know. They've rehearsed this moment. They realize I am the one hurdle standing between them and marital bliss. And so they got to pass this quiz, right? They've studied. They've read humoring pastors for the complete idiot. And sit down and say something like, well, pastor, we want to get married because, shooting another moony kind of glance at each other, we love each other with the love of the Lord. <laughs> ah, you do. That's great. Wow, I'm 100% behind that. Uh, by the way, do you know how the Bible defines love? Could you give me a biblical definition of love? Uh-oh. I'm not sure that was in our reading. Well, let me help you. 1 Corinthians 13 defines love in this way. Verse 4 says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Do you notice something conspicuously absent in this description? It doesn't say love feels good and is kind. In fact, how love makes you feel is completely absent from this for one important reason. Because the Bible defines love not so much as a feeling as much as it is a decision. A commitment. A decision, we draw a line in the sand and we say, this is how I'm going to act. I'm committed to this person. I'm committed to God. I'm committed to His truth. Therefore, I'm going to live my life accordingly. That's what real love is all about. That's that attribute of love, you see, that we find in Jesus Christ. It's the attribute that causes us not to pursue our own fulfillment, but to find our fulfillment in laying down our lives. For the people that we love. Giving up our lives so that we might find it again. That awesome mystery, you see. It's not an emotion. It's a decision. And here we see these two women. When everybody else was nowhere to be found. Acting on that decision. They were going to love Jesus. Whether it paid off for them or whether it had just caused them pain. They were going to love him to the very end. And you know, I really believe that commitment, 
that idea of being committed to the Lord, is the whole foundation of what it means to love God with all of our heart. We need to realize that our love for Jesus Christ is just as much a commitment. Oh, don't get me wrong. I love feelings. I love when the Holy Ghost goosebumps and the spirit shivers are flowing. Boy, you know, why did you come here tonight? The worship team here did such a wonderful job. Boy, you know, it just felt like you're in the very presence of God, seeing how great is our God. Sing with me. You know, it just, oh, there is nothing more wonderful than being in the presence of God. Nothing more wonderful than those feelings. But let me ask you a question. Wednesday night, you feel like you're this close to the Lord. You feel like you reach out and touch me. You're kind of jumping up and down going, oh, this would be a great time for the rapture, Lord. Let's do it. (laughs) But have you ever noticed something about Wednesday nights? They're always followed by Thursday mornings, aren't they? (laughs) And no matter how close you've been to the Lord, it doesn't change how people drive. I can't believe it. It doesn't change or remove those difficult people from your life that are driving you crazy. It doesn't cause that bank book that just won't balance. Or that person that you love that's going back in for another test. Get out of these things. If your faith in Jesus is just about an emotional high on Wednesday nights, can I share something with you? I've been a Christian since 1973. I know, not long after the earth cooled and dinosaurs still roamed. Nearly as old as Chip down there. (laughs) Well, one thing I've learned in walking with the Lord, and I got saved in the Jesus movement. We were all over emotions, right, Chip? That's what we were all about. And I've seen people who confuse emotions with devotion. Ride a roller coaster existence in their walk with God. And some of them get so dizzy riding the highs and going into the lows, they get off the ride. They bail. You see, if being a Christian is all just about feeling good right now, what happens when you feel bad? What happens when someone looks at you and says, You're one of those Christians? Well, I got a few words for you. What happens when someone goes out of their way to make things hard on you as a Christian? You see, there's got to be more to it than just feelings. What's the danger? What happens when we aren't very careful about this? What happens when we don't have that foundation of commitment to Christ in place? Well, we see illustrated another group of people at this miraculous event that show us just how dangerous it is to have emotions without devotion. Take a look at verse 2. We're told, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Now, this is just a little parenthesis. You get this at no additional charge. But I just love this description of this angel. You know, too often we have bought into the cultural idea of angels that they are kind of these, uh, you know, 98 pounds soaking wet individuals. Don't get out very much because they got kind of this pale, pale skin plunking on a harp and wearing a very unstylish robe. They think that's an angel. 
Some people think that angels are those fat babies that are floating around blowing trumpets up in the sky. Here we see something. Angels are awesome. They are no one to be treated trivially. Here we see this angel coming back down. And notice it says he rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. The parallel passage to this in Luke chapter 24 and verse 2 uses a very interesting word to describe how the angel removed the stone from the tomb. The word he uses in Greek indicates that he tossed the stone away like a poker chip. Could you imagine being in an audience for that, seeing this being whose countenance is like lightning, whose clothing is whiter than snow coming down, sitting on, uh, taking the stone away, sitting on it, and then look at the response, verse 4, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Now, notice something here. Here are some people, A, having a very spiritual experience. God is definitely doing something there, and they're there for it, right? Secondly, they're having a very emotional experience. The emotion they're experiencing is dead, cold fear. You ever experienced dead, cold fear? That adrenaline rush that just causes everything in your body to tighten up, the hairs in the back of your neck to stand up. I'll never forget going with a friend of mine for a relaxing weekend of scuba diving off the California coast at a place called Santa Cruz Island. My friend had a 26-foot sailboat, and we would go out there. We found this perfect horseshoe cove where we would anchor. And, and boy, I never sleep better than when I'm on a sailboat. It's just a wonderful experience for me. Why I live in Tucson is another story, but there we were. We were going across the Santa Barbara Channel from Ventura to Santa Cruz Island. And we'd heard there were whales in the channel about that time. And people were seeing humpback whales and, and blue whales. And boy, to be able to see one of those creatures would be an awesome thing. So we were keeping our eyes open. We left about four in the morning, about three or four hours out in the middle of the channel. And about a quarter mile away, we see this thing sticking up out of the water. This triangular thing sticking up out of the water. You could see it a quarter of a mile away. Very impressive. Something that big, looked at my friend, gotta be a whale. Be that big. So we changed course and we started heading towards this triangular thing sticking out of the water. And as we got closer and closer, we realized that this thing was getting bigger and bigger. By the time we got within about 50 yards of this, I, I started to realize a couple of things. I realized that, you know, in, in my study of marine mammals, they, they say the way you can recognize one breaking water is that they make an arch with their back and then you see the dorsal fin sticking up on the top of the back. You always see the little hump and then there's the dorsal fin. A shark, on the other hand, you don't see the little bump. <laughs> I'm looking at this thing and I'm going, I see a big dorsal fin, but I don't see no bump. And we're getting closer and closer, and we look, and about 10 feet behind this dorsal fin that's breaking water about this high is this little tiny tail going back and forth behind it. Tiny only in that a little tiny bit of it was breaking the water. We we're about 20 yards away and closing on this thing. And I'm looking at this, and I'm saying to my friend, that, 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 that's not, 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 not a whale. 
as I said that to my friend on this 26-foot sailboat, this thing seemed about every bit as big as our sailboat, the, the fin, which is paralleling us, turns toward the boat and then goes down. Suddenly that cello music we all know starts playing in the background. I kid you not, I was scared out of my wits. And we're looking in the water, you know, and I, I mean, here's how silly I am. I'm, I'm like leaning on the side of the boat that's closest to this thing. And, and when I see it turn towards us, I just get on the other side of the boat. Like three feet of fiberglass is going to help here. <laughs> I was scared out of my stinking mind. Well, we didn't see him again. Interesting, we got back from our dive trip to Santa Cruz and we got there to the island about two hours later. We both looked at each other and said, you want to go in? <laughs> you go first. <laughs> we read in the LA Times the next week that uh, off of Santa Cruz Island that uh, very weekend, they caught an 18-foot great white shark in a fisherman's net. And then, uh, you know, having me Shark Week on the Discovery Channel, I'm flipping through the channels a week later. They say, welcome to Shark Week. We have gone to the single highest populated area for great white sharks in the entire world. Santa Cruz Island, California. <laughs> Gives you the willies. Well, these guys are beyond the willies. They are coming face to face with a very similar emotional response to the one I had. They knew they were in over their head. Something far bigger than anything they could ever handle. And these were rough, tough Roman guards. They'd seen everything that man had to throw at you. And yet they were so frightened, they passed out. They shook for fear and lost consciousness. Now question, did that do them any conceivable good? Absolutely not. We find a few verses later in the book of Matthew that their response to this emotional experience was, catch this, to go to the Jewish leaders and say, what do you want us to do? The tomb is empty. The seal's broken. Uh, we don't know what to say. We saw this angel. We passed out. Well, they accepted a bribe and came up with some lame story about the disciples coming in the middle of the night and stealing the body. Yeah, that big, bad, bold group of disciples, the feet treat me good squad, was going to somehow find the wherewithal emotionally to overcome all of that and steal the body and then eventually die brutal grisly deaths because they perpetrated a hoax on mankind. If you believe that, you've got a lot more faith than I do. But nothing in their life changed. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing this to you is this is the problem with emotions and spiritual occurrences. Some people define their relationship with God by an emotional experience. God was sure doing something. Man, someone got healed. Oh, man, all these people came to know the Lord. There was this crusade and everybody came forward. It was such an emotional time. Man, I was right in there. With, yeah, oh, man, I never felt like that before. Well, here's the danger. If all you got going is an emotional experience, there is a danger. You don't have a spiritual connection with God. All you've done is felt something. You haven't made a decision to give your life to Jesus Christ. You've just been around other people who have. And you know, I have found the single best way to discover whether your faith is built on emotions alone 
Or, and don't get me wrong, emotions do play a role in it, but emotions leading to a commitment to Jesus Christ is this, staying power. Does it change your life? Do you look at Jesus in a different way and say, wow, Lord, in light of all you've done for me, now you dwell in my heart. Man, changing my life is the least I can do. I want to live in a way that pleases you. I want to be a Christian so it shows. Wow. That's the real deal. That's not just superficial emotionality, sentimentality. That is the real deal. Now stop and think about it. Any other relationship you and I have, doesn't it really work the same way? Let's go back to our premarital couple drifting into my office. You know, I've always noticed these couples have incredibly sickeningly sweet pet names for each other. <laughs> they look at each other and they go, oh, lambykins and oh, bees whisker and things like this. And I mean, I'm really glad they love each other, but boy, by the time they leave my office, I feel like I got a floss or something. Well, one of my jobs as a pastor in premarital counseling is, and I'm, I don't want to be a spoil sport. I don't want to be a wet blanket. I don't want to ruin anybody's fun. I don't want to be the skunk at someone's premarital picnic. <laughs> but it is very important for me to bring these two back down to earth. So I asked them questions like, oh, that's great. You guys want to get married. Tell me, uh, whose family are you going to spend Thanksgiving with next year? Well, my family, of course. We always do. Well, wait a minute. Oh, who's going to handle the checkbook? Well, a checkbook. You mean we're going to have our money in the same account? Are you going to have your money in the same account? You have separate accounts? You, ever, you sat down and you talked about all of this? Well, No. By the time I get done with them, oftentimes you can almost hear the air going out of the balloon. It's gotten so bad at one point, they used to call me the Terminator in premarital account. Not that I'm trying to talk people out of something. But there's got to be more to it than emotions. Because understand this. If the only reason they are staying together is because they feel good, what happens when they don't? You know, we've heard the songs a million times before. I don't know where we went wrong, but the feeling's gone and I just can't get it back. That's not the Bible. That's Gordon Lightfoot, guys. <laughs> Yet, how many couples break up because of reasons like that? How many affairs are kindled? For those reasons, I got to get this feeling back. I, it was all about my feelings. I got, you know, the single most romantic thing that a man can ever say to a woman and a woman can ever say to a man, single most romantic thing, even more than I love you. And I think you ladies out there will agree with me on this is this. I do. Now notice, in the marriage ceremony, when you commit your life to one another, you signify by saying, I do or I will. That's putting it on the line. I would not want to be a couple who is going into marriage, 
who made the marriage vows to one another. Do you take so-and-so to be your lawfully wedded wife? To have and a hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others, keep yourself for the other person alone, so long as you both shall live, and then have the person go, I feel... That's all about I do, isn't it? And that's what God is looking for in our, a relationship with Him. I love what James chapter 1 and verse 25 says about this. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Who will be blessed? Not the person who hears the word, but the one who what? Let me hear it. Who does it gang i am convinced the more i've gone on in the christian life our problem in the christian church isn't that we need more spiritual iq we need more spiritual i do and that's the difference these same soldiers had the same experience with the same angel as these women but they went in completely different directions because one made a commitment to jesus the other was committed only to their emotional experience and what they could get out of it. Very important to understand this because this single problem has created more pain in relationships than I think almost any other. So what's God's prescription? What can we do with our emotions? Oh yeah, when they're clicking, when we're committed, when we follow through on that commitment, they could be a beautiful thing. When they're off kilter, when they dominate, they can be our worst enemy. Here's where it all comes together. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. <laughs> what a silly thing for that angel to say. It's almost like me saying to you right now, Whatever you do out there, don't think about a pink elephant. Stop! Don't think about the pink elephant! Yeah, your life depends on whatever you do for the next five seconds. Don't think about a pink elephant. Well, you know what you're doing. Some of you have the pink elephant dancing on a circus ball already. <laughs> the angel says, don't be afraid. I don't think that angel was silly enough to think that, well, just by saying that, they go, oh, sorry, inappropriate emotion. We'll turn that one off. <laughs> but what the angel was saying was this. Don't let your fear run you right now. Don't let fear dominate your life right now. we got bigger fish to fry than you just giving way to your fear right now. Do not be afraid. For I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. Now listen to his beautiful words. He is not here. For he is risen. As he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. You, you ever wonder why the angel tossed that rock away from the tomb, this stone that weighed anywhere from 800 pounds to two tons, tossed it away like a poker chip. I'm going to say, well, it was let Jesus out. Sorry. You read the other gospel accounts. Jesus did not need doors from that time onward to go in and out of place. He didn't need some angel to let him out. Oh, but the people who came to the tomb sure needed that angel to let them in, to let them see that the Lord, in fact, had risen from the dead. Come see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen from the dead. And indeed, He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see Him. Behold, I've told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear 
and great joy and ran to bring the disciples' word. Notice they've still got this kind of emotional conflict going on. They've got fear in their life, but they've got joy in their life. And they're looking, what if this is really true? And, and is Jesus really real? We haven't seen him yet, but boy, that angel's got a lot of credibility. And, you know, but it's still, you know. Isn't that the way we go through life? Boy, I'd love it if everything was just open and shut and this is the right thing to do and I feel completely committed to... You know, we're always going to battle with our emotions. You're always going to have faith and you're going to have doubt. You're going to have fear and you're going to have joy. You're, you're going to have people who drive you crazy and bitterness is going to rise up and then beautiful grace and forgiveness at the same time. Till the Lord comes back, we're always going to have this struggle. But notice, they put aside this struggle and simply did what the angel told them to do. Oh, this set the stage for this beautiful statement in verse 9. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, rejoice. Did you catch something here? We're going to wind up with this. What was the first word Jesus spoke to these women after his resurrection. Rejoice. I love that. Too often, we let the world uh, take Jesus and, and make him into this emotionless kind of Mr. Spock-like character. We take all of the, the, the emotional side of Jesus and it makes us nervous and we just can't imagine the Lord behaving that way. And so we make him just this kind of very artificial individual, kind of this, this carved out image with antifreeze running through his vein. But who is Jesus? What is he like? The first words out of his mouth were rejoice. You know, we want to know why? Because there is no more joyful person in the universe than Jesus Christ. Jesus has the patent on joy. I love what the book of Hebrews says about this. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, we are told in, in this beautiful passage in verse 8, But to the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, catch this, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Jesus is the most joyful person you'll ever be around. And you know what I love about being around Jesus? He rubs off on you. Boy, we've got everything to be joyful about, gang. I don't care what's happening in your life circumstantially. Boy, circumstances can come, and don't get me wrong, they can knock us for a loop. But when we realize that we serve the risen Savior, when we realize that the tomb is empty... We realize that this is not a case of how we feel about it or wishful thinking, but a hard fact of human history. You know what? We know something. As Christians, the best is yet to come. <laughs> Praise God. You see, this world's after happiness, gang. You ask the average person in this world what they want, say, oh, I just want to be happy. But God's got something greater for you. Joy. Joy is our emotional response to the presence and promises and power of God. God wants to give you that gift. Let's pray and thank the Lord that He's given us emotions and shown us how to use them. Father, we thank You tonight for Your love and Your faithfulness to us. 
Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have not given us emotions to drive us crazy or to lead us astray, but rather as a way of glorifying you, a way of entering into the very same characteristics you have in heaven. Lord, we think of what David said, writing again in the Psalms, when he said that in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand pleasures forevermore. That's our prospect, Lord. And how I pray for those who are faint of heart, maybe those who feel burdened down tonight, you would come alongside of them and lift their eyes to be able to see the glorious heavenly prospects ahead. And that no matter what twists and turns await them on earth, you will never leave them and never forsake them. Lord, let us be wise enough not to ignore our emotions. They can sure point out some things that are going on in our lives that need tending to. They can be your smoke alarm in our lives. But let us neither exalt our emotions so that everything, even our relationship with you, is just a byproduct of them. Thank you, Lord, that as we follow you, as we hold to your promises, as we understand your presence will never leave us and forsake us, as your power works within us, truly goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We have something to be excited about. Take our emotions and may they glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.